Good morning. And I really appreciated the devotional thought that Chris brought to us uh, before we worshiped the Lord as we sang of God's steadfast love, which never ceases. You know, that particular Lamentations, which we studied, and well, we studied actually the whole concept of Lamentations during all church Bible study about how that's something God um, uh, respects and expects in us and through us because there are periods of time that are very difficult, especially when you consider when this particular piece, the uh, Book of Lamentations, was written. Uh, it's when it was right during the fall or the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this was the holy city of God, which I think in the minds of many Jews was indestructible, impenetrable, and would just not be touched because it was God's holy city. And yet it was about to be laid in ruin. And you think about the mindset of the Jews who believe that. You know, this is God's city, and, and now it's going to be, it's being destroyed. Siege is laid in siege and then destroyed. And in the midst of that, he, you know, Jeremiah pens these words, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Uh, his mercies or his compassion, they never fail. And then he goes on to say, his mercies are new every morning. So there may be something in your life that seems to be laid to waste, that there's an area of your life that that's lays in destruction. Sometimes we think our family members, especially our parents, are going to live forever, but they don't. And that, that portion of our life comes to an end. We think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? But remember, God's steadfast love for you, it never ceases, even though someone's life may cease, even though a situation may no longer exist. But God's steadfast love is there. His compassion, his steadfastness, his loving kindness, uh, it, it uh, never ceases. And the beauty of it all is the next morning, uh, his mercies are there, are new. It's like having a debit card that just refills every morning. And you, you used it the day before, next morning it's filled again. A college student's dream. And um, that's the way God's mercy is. It just never ends, never ceases, and it's brand new every morning. So if you're going through something, this is what you speak into your life, as I shared on Christmas Sunday. There's things we need to speak into our lives. God's truth. Not our thoughts, but God's truth. And his truth is he loves you. His truth is his compassion never fails. His truth is that his mercies are new every morning. So just realize that tomorrow morning when you wake up, no matter what you're going through, God's mercy is a fresh and a new for you. That's an incredible thought and a wonderful song to be able to sing, even if it comes out of the book of Lamentations. A reminder that perspective starts today. It's, it's, we promoted it last week. Uh, we, there's not quite enough to f make the class go at the moment. So if you intend to... Um, Go to the first class and sign up. Thanks be to the God, because you may be the person that pushes it over the top so that we can continue the class. We would hate to shut down the class for lack of attendees. So please um, consider it. If you're, on the, if you're on the ledge, take a step over and, uh, and go today and sign up for the class. Child care is available if you need it. So um, we uh, trust that the Lord will bless it and God's will be done. Let's turn to John chapter 21. John 21. We're not just jumping ahead in John. What we're doing is we're taking a particular portion and we're going to, because we have a series we're going to be doing in place of the Gospel of John for about four weeks. In fact, we're going to be out of the Gospel of John for a season. John 21. Let's all rise for the reading of God's Word. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Ten, my sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of Scripture, how you have allowed us to see this private moment between, uh, between Peter and the Lord, and how that will minister to us greatly, Lord, in a multiplicity of ways. Thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, and now may the words of my mouth and the meditations that are upon my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Please be seated. Now, this morning's message will be a family time message. Now, a family time message is one that applies directly to our church family. It's a biblically-based message that relates to what is going on specifically at Evergreen SGV. Now, those of you who are guests here, I mean, there are things that you'll be able to glean from it, but know that it's directly, it's directly created and being taught uh, in relative to a situation that's going on at Evergreen SGV. Now, after... God called Pastor Rocky Settle to Evergreen SGV. I sat with him on numerous occasions, and I mentioned this to him more than once. I said to Rocky, Rocky, if there's something that the Lord lays on your heart that you would like to see changed at our church, this would really be a good time to do it. While, while we're going through a season of transition, while I'm still here and I, could, uh, I can speak into it, and I can also bless it in, this, in the presence of our church family. Now, I shared two things about the changes, however. One, I would have to wholeheartedly agree with them and that they would have to, of course, conform to Scripture. And secondly, try to make it the three biggest changes that the Lord lays on your heart. Like they had to do with the change of carpeting, that probably wouldn't qualify. But some major thing, right? So then Rocky shared with me that he believed that the Lord was moving him to change the leadership structure of our church to eldership from our current board level to eldership. Now, I wholeheartedly endorse this change and believe it is the biblical model of leadership. It's something I actually wanted to do once we hive, but because of a whole variety of circumstances, we didn't move forward with it. We did something else instead, which I will get into. And it's a big change, but it's not as big a change as one might think. And again, I'll get into that in a few moments. So this morning, we're going to start a four-part series on eldership. Um, the staff has approved going to eldership. The church board has affirmed eldership for our church family, and we're going to proceed now to teach on it. Now, Pastor Rocky will be also teaching a church school class shortly, in, in the very near future, where you can, he'll go into more detail, and also it's an environment in which you can ask questions and receive answers as to the best of, of his ability and as the scriptures address it. Let's begin with church government. Church government. Now, it wasn't that your favorite class when you were growing up, government, civics. Uh, the two classes I had difficulty staying awake in, quite frankly, were civics, or that had to do with uh, the government, and also history. Now, as I'm an older man, now as I've gone through all the seasons of life up to the, this, my particular age, I wish I had paid closer attention to those two subjects because they do interface us as we grow through life. 
So uh, even though this may not be your most favorite subject, I think it's something that's very important and bears listening to. Let me first define government. Merriam-Webster says government is the office, authority, or function of governing or ruling without sovereign power and usually without having the authority to determine basic policy. Now, this, is, this is Webster, so it's within an American context. Right, that's government. So I went to the Oxford Dictionary to get a more European flavor to it. The group of people with authority to govern a country, a state, a particular ministry in office. And that, doesn't that sound more British? Right? Govern means to conduct the policy, actions, and affairs of a state, an organization, or of a people. Now, churches in America have different forms of government or governances, or governance, which is an act of governing. So all the churches, we have hundreds or even thousands of different kinds of churches, and a lot of them have different forms of governance. Now, historically, over time, churches tended to take on the form of government that reflected the society in which they lived, especially when the church was first formed. Let me give you an example. Now, the church under favorable Roman rule started to, to form its government based that looked an awful lot like Roman government. Now, under Nero, the Christian church was persecuted. I mean, immensely persecuted. And Christians were martyred right and left. It was not a pleasant time to be Christian. Then in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity as a bona fide religion of the Roman Empire. And that's mainly due to the influence of his mother, who became a believer. Ten years later, in 323 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, let's think if you were a Christian at that point in time. You would have said, hey, we were persecuted, and now we are free to worship. Praise the Lord. And you think, boy, Christianity is just going to be part of the whole Roman Empire. But it was froth with issues and problems. So sometimes we think a solution is really wonderful, but sometimes the solution leads to all other kinds of challenges and problems. That happens in your life all the time, doesn't it? You think you got a solution, but then when you really look at the solution, it's got its own set of new problems that are confront you. And so we have to be careful what we rejoice for, or at least when we rejoice, we realize now there are other challenges that are going to confront them for which we need to be uh, followers of Jesus Christ. So over time, the governance of the Christian church of the Roman Empire started to look like the government of Rome. Now one surefire uh, an analogy was um, the development of the office of Pope. So the Roman Catholic Church had the office of Pope, who was the titular head of the church, who could speak ex cathedra, which means without error. So if you look at the Roman Empire in this government, and you look at the Roman Catholic Church in this government, they both have at its head a monarch-type person, Caesar and the Pope. And then you have the archbishops, as well as you have the Senate. And you go, you go right down the line, and you see that the church reflected the government of the Roman Empire. Let's move, let's move centuries forward to the, to the United States of America. We are an American Baptist church. Some of you don't even know that. But we are an American Baptist church. Now, the origins of Baptist thought and practice can be seen in the late 16th century in, in of all places, England, under the development and the rise of congregationalism. 
Congregationalism. And it became one of the prevalent parish structures in England and in Europe. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, England was a monarchy, still is to this day, but, it, but it's, it's really morphed since back in the day, back in the 16th century. So they had a monarch. And one of the things that the churches started to sort of rebel against was the idea of a monarchy within the structure of the church. So the congregational movement began where all of a sudden there was a shift in leadership, a shift in power from a titular head to uh, the congregation. And congregations began to rule. And that was the style of government that began to develop. And then there was a group of people who decided they had enough with the monarchy and they came to a, a place called America, the new, a brand new country, you know, the Puritans. Part of the reason why some of them left was because of the immense taxation which took place under the monarchy of England. And so they traversed the, the Atlantic Ocean and came all the way to the New World. Now in the New World, right, in 1638, a man named Roger Williams established the very first Baptist church in America. 1638, that was a long time ago. Eventually, the characteristics or the government of the Baptist churches took on the characteristics of the newly found republic or democracy of America. And congregationalism flourished. American Baptist governance was ruled by the people through voting. The mandate of the church membership was then carried out by elected officials that made up different boards. The major board for American Baptists, or Baptists as a whole, was the diaconate board, deacons and deaconesses. So the congregation made a decision, and then the deacon and deaconesses and the board of trustees carried them out. And that was sort of the fabric of the governance of an American Baptist church. So many forms of church government developed based upon the circumstances and, and environments that they were confronted with rather than the Bible. And that's the key. Right? Rather than looking for biblical instruction on how to govern the church or lead the church, they went to circumstances and environment. Now let's take a look at leadership of Evergreen Baptist Church from 1977 to 1997. I have to write that down because I continually get those, those numbers mixed up. In 1977, the government of Evergreen Baptist Church was fully Baptist. Fully Baptist. With a diaconate board and a board of trustees carrying out the mandate of the church family or the congregation. So we are congregational. In other words, if you, you know what an org chart is? It shows you the hierarchy of your leadership, etc. At the very top of the org chart would be the congregation. Now above that is Christ Jesus, of course. But at the head of the, of the human portion of it, you have the, board, the membership, the congregation. Then under that, it was the diaconate board, the board of trustees, and the staff. And they carried out the mandate of the congregation. So we had four meetings a year, every quarter. And fundamentally, all the business of the church had to happen in those four meetings. It was, it was an interesting time, and the meetings were really long. We had to make decisions about stuff, all right? I remember voting for, member, for, uh, for board members. And uh, a lot of times the person who got voted onto the board was the person who wasn't present at the meeting. You know, ever been to those kind of meetings? Well, I, I nominate so-and-so because they're not here and they can't deny the nomination. So people used to send out proxy denials. I don't want to be elected to the board. Right? And that, that really is not a good way 
to see a church run, is it? The other thing that would happen was uh, sometimes someone would say, elect a really godly person, a biblically grounded person, to say the office of uh, the deacon or deaconess in charge of outreach. But they didn't have a clue as to what to do about outreach. They were a godly person, they were a prayerful person, but they had no sense of outreach. Is that a way to run a church? But that was what was going on, right? As senior pastor, I recognized that our form of governance was unbiblical. It didn't really follow the precepts of Scripture. God never intended the church to be led by the laity or the sheep. Throughout the Bible, God's people were led by God-appointed leaders, not elected officials. So in 1977, I started a 40-year journey to change our form of leadership. We moved from a Baptist form of government to a more biblical form of leadership. Now, the metamorphosis began with me taking on the role of a mosaic leader or shepherd, where I was going to lead the church board and the church family. Now, remember, uh, Moses spent 40 years in the land of Midian doing what? After he had to escape from killing a Hebrew in Egypt, he became a shepherd for 40 years. And that's where he cut his teeth on leadership, being a shepherd, even though he didn't know that was going on. David, King David, one of the most honored and revered kings in all of Israel, How did, what was his humble beginnings? He was a shepherd boy. He knew what it meant to be a shepherd. In fact, he's considered to have been a shepherd king of Israel. So two of the greatest and most prominent leaders in Hebrew history were both trained as shepherds and led their people as a shepherd would lead sheep. And that's the history of, of Israel. Our form of governance became less about government and more about leading the church family through the discernment of God's will. So see, it's really less about government and more about leadership if you take a look at it from a biblical perspective. Here's the distinction. The church polity, whatever the polity is, is about leadership and not governance. It is more to do with leadership and less with governance. The church family is not governed as much as it is led. God chose a particular form of leadership that we really should embrace today. Now, more on that form in just a little bit. Now, so from 1977, it was my goal to move our church family from being congregational to being shepherd-led. Move from congregationalism to being shepherd-led. I took the responsibility of leading the church family from the senior pastor position, which we'll call the, um, the chief shepherd or the chief under-shepherd of the church. We moved from a diaconate board to a church board made up of laity and the pastors of the church. We changed the terminology from deacon and deaconesses and a diaconate board, which did not follow the biblical description of what a deacon or deaconess is supposed to do. Essentially, the congregation was fulfilling the role of elder back in the day. The congregation or church family moved from planning and decision-making to doing the work of ministry and affirming leadership decisions. So that's what transpired over the past 40 years. A lot of it happened in the last 20. But we've actually been moving toward it for 40 years. Now let me share about Jesus and the I Am proclamations or statements. Jesus and the I Am proclamations. Now Jesus made seven I Am statements 
in the scriptures, in the Gospel of John. And we'll be going through them over the course of the Gospel of John. Seven I am proclamations. Let me go over them. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door of the sheep. We looked at that. That's the last series that Pastor Rocky shared. He said, I am the good shepherd. And that was all part of that. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Those are the seven. Seven I am statements. Now, there's a theme in the I am proclamations of Jesus. First of all, remember the book of Exodus? You know, Moses is being sent by God to deliver people, his people out of Egypt. And Moses tries to make all these excuses why, not me, to somebody else. And one of the things he eventually says to God is, I don't know who's sending me. Who shall I say sent me? Basically, he was asking God for his name. So that when I get to the people, I can say, so-and-so sent me. And what did God say in response? Tell them, I am sent you. I am. And from that point forward, that's what God was known as. I am. From which is derived the term Jehovah. Right? And, uh, or Yahweh. Right? And uh, when you look at it in the, in the Hebrew, in the original language, the, the, basically the, um, the um, vowels are eliminated. And so when it's written in the text, you really can't pronounce it. And the reason why they didn't pronounce it is because they didn't think you should say the name of God out loud. So Moses gets that answer, and people knew I am had to do with being God. And so when Jesus makes the I am statements, it was very clear. He is proclaiming to be God. So that's part of it. But also, in the seven I am proclamations, they have a theme of salvation in some form. One of the seven, and, but however, one of the seven I am proclamations describes a form of leadership. It has the other two ingredients. He's God, and there's something to do, has something to do with salvation. But he also includes in one of the I am statements that he is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I think Jesus was pointing to his type of leadership and the form of leadership that was to be for his church. I am the good shepherd. Now he also said, and the good shepherd dies for his sheep. And that's the salvation theme in that particular I am statement. Now let's look at the Jesus' appointment of Peter. Jesus' appointment of Peter, or commissioning of Peter. Now, two things we know about Peter. Actually, we know more than that. Uh, two things, but two things we know. We know that Peter was the impetuous uh, disciple, right? Stepped out of the boat, cut off the ear of some guy. I mean, he just acted, sometimes without thinking, right? But God chose Peter for a very specific reason, to do something very specific. Look at, um, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 in your Bible or in, in your device. Here's one of the two things we know about Peter. Jesus said that Peter was the rock upon which the church would be built. Look at verse 18 of verse chapter 16 of Matthew. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There's a lot packaged in that, and we won't unpack it all, right? But part of it, we will. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Now, the word Peter means rock, and the word rock means rock. But when you, when you look at the original language, they're two different words. 
One's a smaller rock, the other one is a bigger rock. And the bigger rock is the rock upon which Jesus is going to build the church. But Peter's going to hold the key to it. What's the bigger rock? It's Peter's confession. Not the man Peter, but his confession is, upon, is the rock upon which Jesus is going to build the church. Now, what confession? I'll look up at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Isn't that a great question? Who do you say the Son of Man is? Let me ask you the same question, rhetorically. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? That is an incredibly important question for you to answer personally. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he God's son? Did he go to the cross to die for you? Did he rise on the third day? That's a remarkably important question. And how you answer that question and what you do with that answer determines your eternal fate. If you say Jesus is God's son, that he died on a cross, that he rose from the grave, and if you say, if you confess him with your heart that he is Savior and Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. But it all stems from answering that question, who do you say Jesus is? And if you sit here right now and you can say, I say he's God's son, I, I believe in the resurrection, but you haven't confessed your faith, what is keeping you from doing that? You've already answered the principal and pivotal question of life. Who do you say Jesus is? Everything else in your life will stem from that once you confess your faith. And at the end of the message, I'm going to ask whether or not you're ready to confess your faith if you never have. And for those of you who are already believers, you've already answered that question. Now, do you behave like Jesus is the Son of God? Is your life reflect the fact that Jesus is your Son of God in terms of your confession of faith? Now, what is, what's wrong with the text? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And those are all good things. But verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the answer. And it's upon that rock that Jesus was going to build the church, that confession of faith. No one becomes a part of the church unless they make that confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the second thing we know about Peter is this. The resurrected Jesus commissioned Peter to shepherd the church. He commissioned Peter to shepherd the church. Now, one other thing we know about Peter. This is probably well known amongst Christian circles. Peter said to Jesus, man, I am never going to desert you. Now, the other guys, they may flee. They may opt out in, on you. Not me. I am with you till the end, no matter what. Right? And he even validates that in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to try to arrest Jesus, and he lops off the ear of somebody. And Jesus has him stop there. I mean, he really was willing to put his money where his mouth was. But then what happened after Jesus was arrested? And Jesus didn't do anything to prevent the arrest. And it looked like Jesus was going to do anything to prevent his crucifixion. When Peter was recognized in the courtyard of the high priest, what did he do? Three times he denies Jesus. Not just once, not just twice, three times. Sometimes we would look for redemption in something we do. After the first denial, he had a chance to redeem himself, but he failed again. After the second time, he had a third chance to redeem himself, but he denies Jesus a third time. 
Do you have ever in those situations where you have a chance to redeem a mistake and you don't do it? You lied the first time, you have a second time to tell the truth, you lie the second time. You have a third time to tell the truth, but you lie the third time. You're just like Peter. So how hard can we really be on Peter? And Peter must, and then when Jesus dies, Peter must think, I am never going to have a chance to redeem myself, to be, redeem those betrayals of my Lord. But you know, you know how it is with the Lord. He does get another chance. God will always give you a chance at redemption. Always. You just have to be looking for it. And you know, sometimes he comes to you and offers it again, which is exactly what Jesus did with Peter. He denied him three times, and Jesus asked him three questions. So, so Peter gets three times to just redeem what he did in the, in the court of the high priest. Look at chapter 21, verses 15 and following. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now look what he says to him. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, now look at the words, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. The post-resurrection, the pre-ascension Jesus commissioned Peter, the one whose confession was the rock of the church to whom he then gives the keys of the kingdom. He tells him, Shepherd my flock. That's how he commissioned them. It's the language of shepherding. He commissioned Peter to feed and tend his sheep. Hence, church leadership is all about shepherding the people who are the sheep of Jesus. Fifthly, church leadership according to the apostles. Church leadership according to the apostles. Let's look at the words of the apostle Peter, a very fitting uh, letter to go to. Look at 1 Peter 5. Turn to 1 Peter 5. Now, Pastor Rocky will, will be touching these verses in the future. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 4. He's gathering the elders. He's talking to the elders. And he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder witness of, and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partakers also of the glory that is to be revealed. So in the New Testament, the shepherds of the flock, the ones who are to lead the flock, are called elders. And that's where we get the word. Elders as shepherds, shepherds as elders. But look what he says to the elders. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. All right. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, and yet as lording it over those allotted up to your charge, but proving to be examples to whom? The flock, another reference to shepherding. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, who is Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So you have shepherds and you have the chief shepherd. You have shepherds and you have the good shepherd. And the shepherds are submitted to the great and good shepherd, Jesus. Acts 20, turn to Acts 20. Look at the words of the apostle Paul. It wasn't just Peter, look at Paul. From Miletus, he sent, oh, verses 17 and 18, along with verse 28. 
From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all your what? Your flock, which among whom, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you're supposed to oversee the flock to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he calls together the elders of the church and exhorts them to do what? Shepherd the church. Doesn't say govern the church. Don't form a government necessarily, but lead the church family as a shepherd would lead his flock. Now let's take a look at leadership of Evergreen Baptist Church from 1997 to 2017 and actually to 2019. So once our church family hive, Evergreen SGV, was born, at that juncture, we almost went to eldership. Almost. That was really on my heart. But there were so many other things we had to get accomplished that we put it on the back burner and we never brought it to the front burner. You did that in your life at all? You know there's some things you got to do, like maybe clean out the garage, so you put it on the back burner? All of a sudden, there's other things that clutter the back burner and you no longer get to clean out the garage? Well, that's sort of what we did. Now, I'm not, I'm not associating eldership with cleaning out the garage, but there's a, there's a correlation there. We moved, but we moved even further into eldership style of leadership. A strong senior staff was developed and began serving as, in an elder-like fashion, shepherding the church family. The church family continued to affirm decisions made by the senior staff and the church board. And if any time the church family did not affirm a, a, a decision, then of course the, the senior staff and the church board will go back to the drawing boards because it needs the affirmation of the saints. So the church family played a crucial and will continue to play a crucial and critical role of affirmation. Right? But nonetheless, it's the leadership that leads and it's the congregation that affirms the direction of the leadership. So what does eldership replace? Right. What does eldership replace? Eldership will replace a single senior pastor with the multiplicity of men who are called to serve as shepherds of the church family and will be known as elders. So eldership or elders will not replace the church board. The church board will begin to assume other roles, however. Rather, the elders, the multiplicity of people who will be put, who oversee the church, will replace a singular mosaic shepherd-like pastor, and that was me. So I will be replaced by a multiplicity, by, a, by, by men who have been called by God, discerned by the church family, to be the shepherds of this church, both professional in terms of paid and lay, lay elders. And Rocky will be the first amongst all the elders. I think it's going to be a, a wonderful venture forth. Now, some of you may think, well, are we sure this is what we want to go to? Well, for one thing, I think it's biblical. And over the next three sermons, you'll see where the, how the scripture addresses it. When Pastor Rocky teaches the class, you'll see. You know, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to, if you can attend the class, understand how the scriptures speak to this. But no matter, no matter who is the senior pastor, no matter who are the elders of the church, no matter what form of leadership is adopted by the church family, one thing will remain constant. Now I'm going to ask you a second rhetorical question. That's two in one sermon, right? Second rhetorical question, right? What is the one thing, in the context of what we're speaking, that will remain content, const, constant? What is the one thing that will be consistent through it all? All right, here's the answer. Jesus is the good and great shepherd 
of Evergreen SGB. And Jesus should be the great and good shepherd of every church. And if Jesus is the good and great shepherd of Evergreen SGV, we will always be headed in the right direction. You know, he has always been and always will be a good shepherd and a great shepherd to our church. I have been chief shepherd of Evergreen SGV for over 40 years. But my shepherd is Jesus, the good and great shepherd. You have been depending on me to follow Jesus who has been leading our church family. That has been the basis of your trust in me as your shepherd. And I've had a lot of great people around me. God has really lifted up great leaders in our church. Pastors and staff and church board, all remarkably gifted and tremendously committed to the ministry of this church and shepherding the flock. We have been blessed with leadership here. And I think the leaders have been blessed with wonderful sheep, people who want to do ministry and people who are willing to submit themselves to the leadership of the church so that God's will can ultimately be discerned, decided upon, and then do something about. Now, Pastor Rocky will be God's appointed lead shepherd of our church in the future. Through it all, however, and remember this, through it all, Jesus will remain the good and great shepherd of our church. And one more thing. Jesus will remain the good and great shepherd of your life. Like a shepherd savior, like a shepherd lead us to him, says. This isn't just a corporate thing for a church family. It's an individual thing, too. Jesus should be your good and great shepherd. You know, he's the one that's carrying over you. He's the one that's tending to you. He's the one that'll feed you if you open up the scriptures. Jesus is your good and great shepherd. Therefore, his mercies are new every morning. His compassion never fails. His steadfast love will never cease. I went through that scripture backwards. Whether it goes backwards or frontwards, it's the truth. No matter what you are going through at this point in your life, you know, his steadfast love will never cease. His steadfast love for you will never cease. His mercies and his compassion will never fail you. And those compassions and mercies are new every morning. Isn't that wonderful? It's a wonderful truth to speak into our lives, to claim no matter what we're confronted with as we live through life. Let's pray. If you would like to have the shepherd the great and good shepherd, to be your shepherd. If you've never asked him to be your shepherd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Jesus desires to be your good and great shepherd, just as the scripture says. He went to die for you as a good shepherd would. He's a great shepherd in that he sits at the right hand of God and he's there when you get judged. And he'll say, this is my child because they confess me. Do you want that to happen when you come before the, the throne? of grace and mercy and also judgment? If you would like that, then repeat this prayer after me, making it your own. Confess your faith in the shepherd so that he can feed you and care for you as only the great and good shepherd can. This is the prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died on a cross 
that you rose from the grave. I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I ask you into my life as my shepherd, Savior, and Lord. Now close off your prayer with an amen. And with all heads bowed and eyes closed with the exception of our pastors, if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, would you please raise your hand and, and please raise it high so we can support you in your newfound faith. Thank you. Anybody else? Raise your hand and raise it high so we can see it. Praise the Lord. Anybody else confess their faith in the shepherd this morning? Now, if you're a little reluctant to raise your hand, please let somebody know and let us know so we can accompany you in your journey of faith. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. You are good. You are so good. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.